Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Sorry You're In My Seat, a weekly podcast that unites two best friends on a quest to find the greatest movies of all time. My name's Aaron and each week I have the pleasure of talking movies and films with my best buddy James. Hello there. And together we've been on this quest now for best part of four years we've taken on over 230 episodes we've done everything we've done films you've heard of some you've never heard of we've done cult classics we've done cinema favorites we've done box office bombs this week however we're going to look at what underpins a great film and that is its score Ooh. we're looking at some composers and their best pieces of work to answer the question what are your three favorite movie themes but again we're looking at scores. We're not looking at soundtracks that no. are made up of jukeboxes. No, God, no. So, you know, your Pulp Fictions and your Edgar Wrights who, who pick these licensed, fil- uh, licensed music to bring part. Great films mm. and they work. No, no, no. We're going for originals, mate. We're going for grand opera. We're going from your fucking John Williams, who is definitely going to be spoken about. I mean, that's the question. How many John Williams themes are in your top five or three is the question. (laughs) (laughs) But we are going to look at some of our favourites, some of the iconic, some of the infamous. A good score, a good um, score for a movie should be subtle. It should help to direct a scene. It should add uh, to a character's narrative. It should help build suspense. It should help you know, bring the viewer to the realisation of that scene. I mean, subtly. Subtly. But then every now and again, some come out of the bag that are so upfront. Yes. Sometimes you can walk away from a movie going pretty bland, but that was a banging soundtrack. Yes. I and mean, this is the problem. You come out, you're humming the theme. If the theme's too good, that's the only thing you remember coming out of that cinema. That film could be Dog or Duncan but you're still humming that theme tune, mate. And uh, history is full of them. You'll have your own. So after this episode, once you hear this, we'd like you to get in touch with your top three and your top five so we can laugh and smirk at them because that's what we do. We hate you. We we want to hear of the John Williams, the Hans Zimmers, the Max Steiners, the Rachel Portmans, the James Horners, the Danny Elfmans, the Howard Shaws, the Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. We want to hear what are your favourite film composers? What are your favourite pieces of music within films? The themes that make the film. That's what we're going to be discussing. And along the way, we've got some films to talk about this week that we've seen. James, you've seen... I have gone to the cinema, mate. And I, you know me, I always talk about how much I've got superhero fatigue. Well, that's right. I went to go see Ant-Man 3 and the Quantumania. I've also stopped by the Disney Plus to watch Wakanda forever. And then for no real reason, despite the fact I love it, on Disney Plus, I also stuck around to watch Disenchanted. Lovely. Famously, first episode called Enchanting My Favourite Romance. I saw this week a film I know you've already seen and that you've already talked about, but I just wanted to touch base with you now that we can have a conversation jointly and the film has been out for a while. Yes. That is Bullet Train. Oh, good. Yeah, it's on Now TV at the moment, isn't it? Yes, I watched it for a second time today. Well, there we go. So we can just catch up again. I know your opinions on it, but it'd be good to revisit uh, that Brad Pitt movie. I've also watched a TV show (gasps) that I binged. Oh, please tell me it's... Happy Valley. Oh, fucking you, slut. Have you watched it all? I'm two episodes from the end. If anything, James, this podcast is an inconvenience tonight because I was going to finish it. <laughs> so I'll have to wait till tomorrow to, to finish it. But I have watched all of Happy Valley and what a TV show that is. We'll talk about that. And I watched a film so odd, so bizarre, so weird that, and I had a few drinks, so I will say that as a caveat. Yeah. But the next day I woke up thinking I imagined the film and then for half the day, thought like felt like I wasn't going to Google it to see if actually what I thought I saw was real. But then it got that my mind got that disorientated. I had to Google that I had actually seen this movie, and that is a film called the Crimes of the Future, oh, starring Viggo Mortensen 
makes uh, weird films to me. Mate, I'm going to get into it. But I was trying to explain this film and halfway through explaining it, I thought, I've made this up. This is a weird dream. <laughs> and then I Googled it. No, it is true. And I did watch it. <coughs> I drank a bit too much red wine, but it was a uh, it was an experience. It was an experience, my friend. So we've got loads to get through in this in this episode. So let's uh, do you want to, is there anywhere you want to start? Ant Man's out. Did you wanna did you wanna kinda of hit that? Because we obviously can't go into spoilers, so um we'll well we can start with it. We will start with Ant Man, basically the big release from Marvel and Disney. It's setting up their next phase, setting up their big villain. You have seen trailers for it for everywhere. The third Ant Man, and I'm gonna say this now. I don't know about you, but with the loss of Iron Man and Captain America, I think Paul Rudd's Iron Man has found himself at the forefront as possibly a leader. Other than Thor, he is the biggest name, really, left in it. Think on that. Think on that. <laughs> think he is. I think he is. I do think he is, because Paul Rudd's very lovable. He's been in the role now one of the longest serving, and he is the most adaptable. So he's the everyman. He's not a god with thunder powers. He's literally a small-time criminal who did something for, the good, for a good reason, found out he had this magical power, and he goes for it. So I would maintain that there's a lot more riding on Ant-Man and his future, and I've had all these theories that he was going to die, and I won't get into any of these spoilers whatsoever. So, starring Raul, uh, Paul Rudd, Evangelina Lilly, Jonathan Myers, um, Catherine Newton, and uh, Bill Murray. That's right, they've yeah, Bill Murray's in it. They've yeah. shot their Bill Murray lot. <laughs> so I feel like Bill Murray could have had a bigger role in a future Michael Douglas and of course the Michelle Pfeiffer and it is really nice to see Michelle Pfeiffer back on the big screen I'd like to point out so uh, Ant-Man 3 Paul Rudd Ant-Man he's he's now a recognised name he's loved on the streets they come see him he's, he's a happy lucky lad he's moved from criminal to recognised face on the street he's happy loves his new role in life they call him the insect man coffee owner Hilariously mistakes him for Spider-Man, lets him have his his coffee for free. Funny moment. We like it. His daughter, though. So obviously she stayed alive during the blip and had no one to look after her because whilst Horrod's character wasn't actually snapped away, he was in the quantum realm, Mm. trapped. She's turning into a bit of a nightmare, mate. Crusader, doing what she wants. Mate. Damn this free will. Troublesome team. However, adopted into the Hank Pym family. That's where it all kind of goes wrong. This film has got great style, substance, panache. Do you remember the problem with the first four movie? It was too much Avenger stuff because they were setting up further down the line. Mm. The snappy dialogue that I really liked in the first Ant-Man, and I think the second Ant-Man was quite serviceable. I quite liked it. I liked Walton Goggins as a villain. I thought it was good. There's too much. So the film in its three acts starts off as it needs to set up and build up. The film exists to kind of get the audiences used to Jonathan Myers because if you've not seen Loki, you're not really sure who this character is. Does a great job. We have Kang the Conqueror. He's stuck in the Phantom Realm. And because of uh, Cassie, her poor daughter, being a bit naughty with the rules, she sends a signal down to the Quantum Realm, which, quite frankly, freaks Michelle Fiverr, whose character was lost down there for several years, the fuck out. Mm. Bing, bang, bosh. They're all sucked into the quantum realm where we find out that Kang the Conqueror is trying to escape. He's imprisoned there. He needs to get out for reasons which I won't get into because they're spoiler territory. What you have is a storyline that doesn't run parallel to the storylines it should be telling. And what I mean by this is trying to set something else up. So it's always thinking several movies ahead. The focus isn't on that man. He's not quibby. He's not funny. The dynamic that they go that he's an absent father, 
is something that they don't really play on that much because when the daughter of Cassie was growing up, Pora's character was in jail and then wasn't there physically because he was in a different realm. So the idea that he's got to re-establish his relationship with his daughter is completely juxtapositioned to the character of the Wasp, who's obviously Hank Pym's daughter, who never had a relationship, but it never explores it really. It's mm. kind of secondary because you need to find out about Kang the Conqueror. And very big positive, Jonathan Myers is legit brilliant. He's really good. He's menacing. He comes across as a promising villain because Thanos was a very good villain. He was very... Uh, the awe of Thanos, even before we even found out that Thanos was cast, you still knew of the character. You knew him in the background. You knew he was going to be a big deal. Jonathan Weiss has done a very good job here. Mm. He's He commands the screen. He's menacing. There's a throwaway line where he says, Didn't, haven't I killed you before? Like, he's so non-dismissive of... Then it turns out he's killed Thor before. This idea that his character has lived through centuries and eons has killed different variants of things. But my problem is, to really understand the film... Uh, sorry, the problem is the film sacrifices so much of itself, like the Ant-Man soul, to give you a story. Like, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. The character's two-dimensional. And they, the majority of the film takes place in the quantum realm, which is such an alien, an alien world. It's hard to really get your grips on anything. Two after-scene credits, which are very impressive. One of them sets up Loki Series 2, which I assume is coming out. Yeah. And... um. No, I can't spoil it. The, the rest, the villain for the rest of the mm. MCU. So we know we're going to get Jonathan Myers as different versions of Kang throughout, and this film kind of sets it up. It's disappointing. It is disappointing. And I know critics haven't been kind. I don't say it's a bad film. It's okay. Yeah, I think I think the weird thing about this one is that um, it's come out at that time, if we think a year ago, what Spider-Man did at the box office this time last year, Yeah, followed very quickly by Doctor Strange. Two massive films yeah. that came out last year. I think this has come out to, oh, oh, it's it's just a Marvel film. Yeah. And, and I think to Marvel, that's a bit disheartening because it's the kickoff of the big new phase. Um, but yeah, I, it, it, I think a lot of the feedback from critics and fans alike was eh, middle of the road kind of... There are some good moments, but there are some really bad moments. Like Ant-Man as a character isn't very impressive in this. And that's what, do you know what, that's what I love best about Ant-Man was because he's, He's the one that's a joke. Mm. He's the joke character, but through his own acts, through his own films, we've shown that he's not. He's the most relatable. He's an everyman. He doesn't have special powers. It's his suit that has the powers, and it's just like the right heart in the right moment. None of that comes across in this. He's kind of an arsehole. The ending as well. The last thirty seconds are quite poor. Like it's, it takes like eighties filmmaking. There's a there's a voiceover, direct action. I don't think some of the performances are that great. I don't really like the introduction of Kathleen Catherine Newen, who's the third actress now to play the Cassie. Mm. I don't think she does a great job. It's not her fault. It's it's the script. You're not going to shine. The introduction of Modok is a, is a great. It could be a great character, but it's not. It's let down. There's lots of Easter eggs, but I don't watch films for Easter eggs. As an introduction to the next big bad, it's disappointing. Whilst Jonathan Myers does a very good job, Kang the Conqueror isn't really that conquery. Mm. He's not. He's not a conqueror. <laughs> he's not. He's not a conqueror. Mate. He's a. He's a pebble. <laughs> um, so Ant Man was disappointing. It was not that great. I, I, it's over two hours long. I think just it feels like that. I had a bit of numb bum. I was in the cinema going, oh, do, I, "Do I really need to sit here?" Lacked the whimsy of the first two. And that's what ultimately was disappointing. It felt like this film was something you have to watch to understand the next phase, not a must watch. Mm. Like when you when we sat in the cinema and we watched 
Iron Man for the first time. It was brilliant. It's like it was must see. It was watching this, it was like, I have to see it, not must see. I have to see this because of what's coming next. And I was disappointed. I, I'm still looking forward to it. I'm a Paul Rudd fan. I no. like most of his work, even films that haven't always landed. Dinner for Schmucks, I'm a, I'm a defender of. You know, I think you're Paul, the one. I'm, I'm that guy. Yeah. <laughs> that no, but I do like Paul Rudd. There is something that, that says to me, take my dollar, Paul Rudd. Um, you know, he, but I, I, I'll get around to it, I think, when it. When Jonathan Myers is. So I never really knew much of Jonathan Myers' work before I found out. We all found out he's been Kang. And then he did appear in a lot of like films at the Netflix, the Western one he was brilliant in. Then I seemed to know his work after he'd been announced. And he's the right person for this. He's menacing and brilliant. Mm. His throwaway lines where he gives like this kind of dark gravitas are really cool. And it's going to be really cool to have one constant villain, despite be playing different variants of this person that I assume. It's really cool. Yeah. I, I, that looks wicked. But you shouldn't have to sacrifice characters like this. And also it makes him seem... No, that was dangerously close to us. Well, no, I'll stop talking now. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. So, it's, I, I will watch it when it comes out. Uh, yeah. I, I think Jonathan Myers is, uh, is a, he's, he's great. I mean, he's the new big bad in in Creed 3, isn't he? He's the, yes. And yeah. Which, that should be exciting. Um, and the, the HP Lovecraft series that he was in as well was um, was really interesting as well. So. So it does this thing as well that guys of the galaxy had, you know, his secondary characters are the best. Because it's a multiverse, you've got like this blob that's obsessed with people's holes. It's funny, mate. It's mm. that sort of humor that you're thinking, it's funny. Yeah. It's, it's, it's that kind of... Sold. <laughs> there's a character who can mind read, um, can tell when you're lying or not. They've got quite good secondary characters, but they're, they're tertiary characters because they're barely in it. The storyline, mm. it moves miles so quickly. And I'm going to say this now, the trailers is not the film you think you're walking into, which I actually was annoyed about because the trailers make it look like a completely different film. Yeah, the trailers make it look like it's a big a big deal. Like yeah. the, the, this is life and death. This is like, the, but then that's the Marvel thing is it everything is. is world ending. Yeah. Um, is there a Marco Pena sighting? No. Oh, wow. No Marco Pena. Peyton Reed though has done something magical with them on my movies. I, I, I still think as much as a champion that I wanted, you know, the third uh, Marco Keaton Batman movie, which we may get in the form of the Flash. Which or, we are, he's in the trailer, isn't he? That trailer's weird. Um, as much as I wanted Henry Cavill to finish the Superman arc, and as much as I wanted um, the Edgar Wright Ant-Man movie, I am happy with the with the, with the Peyton Reed one. So, um, just very quickly, Bullet Train. I watched it this week, and I know that you saw it when it came out of the cinema. Um, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's now on Sky TV. It's about five assassins on board a Bullet Train, Brad Pitt being the main one, played in this case, he's called Ladybug. He's a snatch and grab um thief if you like very simple he has to go on retrieve a briefcase get off at the next stop it couldn't be any easier unfortunately yeah. though there are other assassins on board that train as well um these take in form of joey king uh aaron taylor johnson um brian tyree henry it's a great cast with some awesome cameos which i won't spoil um and it sorry no nothing i just i just remember, i remembered some of them and as uh, Hiroyuku San, oh, how do you pronounce it? Scorpion, San yeah, <laughs> who, it's the best scorpion in the world. Who is in a shit film? But, it's yeah. uh, also based on the book of uh, Katoro Zaki. Uh, it, I, it's an anime, isn't it? Yeah, I, 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 I didn't really know what it was going into it. Other than it looked like like it neon like lit popcorn fun, <laughs> bubblegum fun with lots of bad accents. Yeah, <laughs> and um, I must admit, for its two hour runtime, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And this is this is the the I, I don't know when it came back, but for me as a as a growing film fan, Lucky Number Slevin was a was a turning point for me in a movie, which 
that to me was a was a, a movie that I watched, and it's not saying it's original, but mm. it's the one that I watched growing up that did that whole slight of hand thing where it showed you things, but at the end it showed you it from a different angle. And actually this character was really this person all along. And actually their feuds was because there's a, there's a reason behind it. And it's a film that relied on its, its uh, eureka moment towards the yes. end. And I remember watching that film, not thinking it was the greatest movie ever, but remember watching that movie thinking, I did. I didn't expect it, and then a lot of films have done that since, which have kind of played down a. You think you're watching one thing, and it goes. Actually, else. you should have been watching the other hand. And this, I thought, was very much along them lines. In that, you know, you got the Brad Pitt character. You see certain flashbacks. You see certain side storylines off the train that he may have been involved in. You've got um, these caricature assassins. You know, I think definitely um, Aaron Taylor Johnson and, and Brian Tyree Henry who play Tangerine Lemon, and Lemon Tangerine and Lemon are just great as comedic relief. and stickers and everything. Yeah, but also <laughs> deadly as in what they do. It has multiple intertwining storylines that all pay off into a ridiculous ending. Yes. That is absolutely ridiculous. So ridiculous. But kind of is the point of the movie is the point, you know, and I, and do you know what? I watched this the other night, it, you know, I was, we were child free for the night, for the evening. Um, you know, we watched this film and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was the two hours I needed at the end of a, week, a long week to just escape and watch something that was nonsensical and funny. I laughed a few yes. times out loud with this. So Esther said this was her, th- this was before we saw everything everywhere all at once, I'd point out, because I don't know if this would have changed it. But she said it was the funnest movie she saw last year. Yeah. 2022, she said that was the most fun she'd had in the cinema. That's what I and wanted we went from to the cinema to see Wrath of Khan. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's what I wanted. That's what I needed from this film. I needed something that was fun. I wanted to leave my brain at the door and I wanted to just be swept along. Brad Pitt is brilliant in, in the lead. Some of the cameos are fantastic. Joey King is great. You know, it's, it's a film that is absolute nonsensical, but. Thoroughly enjoyable, and it, and it and it did what I needed it to do. I just needed it to be entertaining and funny, and 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 actually quite gory. There's quite a lot of brutal scenes in it. Yes, yeah, because there's not a lot of sex, drugs, or or swearing. It kind of maintains a 15 rating when it probably could have been much more because it is it gets bloody and gory and violent very quickly. Um, but it's because it's laced in comedy and and just how surreal it all is and the bullet train being the perfect backdrop for that you know in the neon kind of um, kind of cities of Tokyo um, and I'd like to point out as well, one of my favourite things is Michael Shannon as a speech that I'm fairly certain lasts about 10 minutes mm. he just he just when he comes on the bed he just has this speech and he's brilliant yeah I, I thought it was I thought it was great and and uh, right to the end right to the to the final um, play of the movie, I, I thought it was. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, really oh, enjoyable. It's over the top nonsense, but wrapped in a very nice bun. It's fun. I, I also, I, there's a, there's a there's a side character in it that um, a, 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 more of a kind of not a cameo, but um, Karen Fukuhara's in it. Who I was looking at, I think what the boys. She's silent in the boys, isn't she? She's the like, oh, yeah. yeah. And and I was looking at, I was like, who who is that? <laughs> and I was trying to think for ages, like, where have I seen that? Of course, the boys. It, it, it's a great cast. It's a great film. Um, I really enjoyed it. Really, really enjoyed it for what it was. It's not going to win any awards or anything. But if they did a sequel, I'm, I'm all over it. <laughs> I'm all over it. I'll be the first to see that if we come out of the cinema. I'd watch that. I think that's really fun. Should we do composers then? Get then we'll wrap up the film uh, with uh, certainly my bizarre watch, and then you've got Wakanda Forever to talk about. Can I get Wakanda Forever out of the way quickly, purely because it's another keep it Marvel, on the Marvel film. train? Just keep it on there quickly. So the, the sequel, obviously, Wakanda Forever, 
it's going to be hard to make because it was for the black community the first chance to see a Marvel character where race had nothing to do with it. It had nothing to do with it. And that's something that I could never, I couldn't understand. Chadwick Boseman did a phenomenal job. He mm-hmm. was brilliant in everything. We thought he was going to be the next leader. He was going to stand up. And unfortunately, the actor died, passed away here. Where does the franchise go from here? You can't let it go because it's very successful. It's got a target audience. It's well received. It's got a base screening for a film. I think it also, I think it would be an injustice if they didn't do it. you've, You've talked about some really important reasons why they should do it. You know, and I suppose, but the the other question is, is that in 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 his legacy, not just in a person, but in a character, yes, it gives us another layer of humanity to superhero films. And Angela Bassett is up for an Oscar, mm. so you know she's so it's another it's another example of a of a comic book film smashing through barriers. So this one deals with it quite respectfully. So it opens with the death of uh, T'Challa. And her, the sister, played by um, Lolita Wright, trying mm. to save him. Trying to save him using the herb that basically has been destroyed at the end of the last film. And the Black Panther isn't a big part of this film. It's, it's an idea that they basically wrestle. It's a mother and daughter film. How do you get over the loss of a cherished loved one, especially one that means to you? So they basically draw, draw that story in. And it's well acted and well told. and. I've always had, I've always really liked how they used, I don't know, African culture typed with high-tech technology. It's always, it's always been different, and I've always liked that because that's what comic books are. Mm. Comic books are an escape from realism. It's really cool. However, because of this, that their dangers, mate, of vibranium, and everyone knows about vibranium now, everybody wants a piece. Mm. Turns out that the Americans, mate, designed a tracker to find it. So they're trying to find other types, other types of vibranium in the world so they can start creating their weapons that Wakanda has. It only takes them down deeps, mate, down to the deeps of... <laughs> deeps of the ocean where the mariner lives. Yeah. One of the worst villains <laughs> I've ever seen. <laughs> and I, it's, apparently it's very accurate to the comic books. I couldn't give a toss. When you first see him, he appears coming out of the water. His shoes have little f- wings on them. <laughs> done. Menacing. They're, they're killers, mate. They do everything they can to make them seem like they're Wakanda's mm. equals or even betters, that they will take them. And the Wakandans have like a genuine like um, identity crisis because they're like if we're not the only people who have vibranium everything we've been told in our culture is a lie you know but Neymar <laughs> he's such a cock <laughs> I feel like I could kick seven shades of shit out of him based on the fact that it's the Aquaman conundrum you can talk to fish I could beat you in a fight the acting's really good but the storyline is is terrible your villains are awful like the whole idea of respect and honour between these two peaceful people but they need to respect like Neymar like blames the queen for saying you're the reason why people have come to our land searching for vibranium so yeah. you owe us I really they couldn't like find that. any alimentium I, re- I really like that as a storyline that's really cool mm. it's like you owe us but it plays terribly absolutely awfully it comes to a no spoilers it's on Disney Plus it goes exactly where you think it goes the character of uh, Shuri stands up she learns some things about herself. But some of the side characters, again, quite annoying. Mm. The villain lacking. 
there's not enough, there's no spark in this film, which I could see in the first one. I don't think this film's been that well received, unless you're like half the critics think it's the best thing ever. The other critics just don't think it's that good. I'm in the middle. I thought parts of this film were very good. The art style is something that is so unique and different. Uh, in Ant Man, we go to an alien world and it doesn't work. We go to Wakanda and it does work because it's based on something that's different, it's unique. Parts of the quantum zone looked exactly like they were taken from Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm. So it looks like they've just done like a, a, a palette swap. You can't, the stuff in Wakanda is genuinely original, different. And you can tell if you were an art designer working on that, you had so much fun. Yeah. But when I'm watching the film and I'm more interested in the architecture of the buildings or the social economic history of this country, you have failed somewhat in your storytelling. I don't care about the man with fucking wings on his shoes. Yeah. Because he sounds like a knob. And trust me, he is a knob. <laughs> so I mean, Ryan Coogler has since come out as he and said what well, he had scripted for the second movie and it was going to be a father-son film. Yes. The first one and this being, film was definitely a mother-daughter yeah. film. So they tried to take that. And it was going to be it. that he came back from the blip and found out he had a son that's now six. And, and it sounds like Ant-Man has kind of inherited a part of that as well. This... And it does feel like they're setting up the Young Avengers, doesn't it? It's more it and more they're looking at the younger kind of crowd within, you know, which could be interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. The critics weren't overly kind of it. I think a lot of them is exactly what you said, met halfway to say it was interesting, some good themes and well acted, but overall the execution wasn't great. And also, I, I do need some help here. I thought Winston Duke was kind of a villain. <laughs> we kind of came round, didn't he, at the end of that? The, with right, the common, okay. common enemy of... Um, but But in this... There was some. The end is confusing to me. I don't really know. I'm really not sure what's happening at the end. Mm. So it is it is confusing to me. Mm. I did. I did like Winston Duke. As as films go, not they're not 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 that bad. Just not that good. Mm. Whimsical in places, disappointing in some. Well, that sets up composers nicely, doesn't it? Yes, it does. However, I'd like to point out what these last two films haven't had is a banging tune, mate. <laughs> Um, we said at the top of the episode, our, 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 I suppose the point of today was to try and say, is there a top three? I've got a top five, but top three, at least, themes or original scores from films. A film composer's score supports scenes and characters to influence viewers subconsciously, to move audiences without them being aware, to suggest, question, suspect, arouse, caution, build, release, sustain, and elevate a film. Like oil in an engine, we might not focus on it, but if we take it away, the overall performance would be affected. Of course, great pieces of work, however, do stand out and do steal the spotlight. So I've got a couple of examples here, maybe eight or nine composers. We'll just very briefly yes. do some name shouts, do some, I suppose, top uh, examples of what we're talking about here. So the first one, Ennio Morricone. Uh, for the the good, the bad, and the ugly, a score that more iconic usually than the film defines the Western genre. Exactly, yeah. a film a score that was so badass. There's actual gunshots within the orchestral piece. That's badass. That's going extra. Yeah, it's it's a it's a the moment that was released into the world, it set the bar then for Western soundtracks, and it's been imitated, parodied, but will never be uh, mad. But then his work would go on to also work in the Untouchables. And um, and Days of Heaven, which again, if you you Days of Heaven might not be one of those films that you recognise, but if you listen to that score, you know that score, you know that piece of music, the twinkling. I'm trying to think what it's most famously been. It's been in an advert or a TV show, but you would know it if you if you heard it. Um, Jerry Goldsmith, who James is probably a big fan of, because he helped the Enterprise take flight. 
God, that magical sounds right. And uh, that's the only thing about the you're right. You know the motion picture. It's the only good thing about the first one because <laughs> if you're watching that, you are brain dead, and the only thing that's listening to you is the music. Um, let's who else we got here. We got uh, Nina Rotan, the Godfather. You mm. can you can not me saying the Godfather, mate. You can hear the opening. You can see the credits. You can see Don Corleone stroking a cat before he speaks. You can hear that. You can hear that music. That foreboding sound. That it's, it's harrowing. That sound is harrowing. It? Because it, in the one hand, you you want to say it's beautiful, but actually, when you know what it's what it's representing, you know the crime syndicate of it is <laughs> it is it, it's quite difficult, isn't it? It's a uh, James Horner though. If we look at Titanic and no end of collaborations oh, with James Cameron, James Horner that was on mine. I, it's just even the Titanic. Did he do Terminator? Don't know if he did Terminator. No, no but, but, but certainly but Titanic. I was going to say Avatar. Obviously, they are. When you have an epic film, you kind of need to have the score to back it up. This, the, 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 I always think of the music that plays when I won't, I won't let go, Jack. As she then lets go. <laughs> but James Horner's job in that as well, in the beginning of that film, is and James Horner uses motifs throughout his work as well. So um, he'll take parts of Celine Dion's uh, My Heart Will Go On and influence them into score. But if you listen to that as well, he it's a difficult job at the beginning of that movie to, to, to build up tragedy because yeah. we all know as audience members where that story's going. We might not know who dies and who survives, but we know the ultimate outcome. So it's, again, a very foreshadowing um, score. Obviously, Obviously Enemy at the Gates and Beautiful Mind being other films and Avatars, we've talked about 10 Oscar nominations for, for James Horner as well. <laughs> Just, yeah. If only there wasn't some other massive composer that is like ten. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> I just, I just did just find out. Sorry, he was irritating me. Brad Fidel for the Terminator because for me it's the clashing of it's the clashing of metal turning it into. Dun, 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 dun. It's fucking. It's, it's to me that's 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 an epic song. Symphia. It's got more synth in it than orchestra, mm. hasn't it? But um, Howard Shaw with Lord of the Rings soundtrack, putting us. In Middle Earth, putting me in Bag End, in Hobbiton. Yes. That's the second, the moment that that theme uh, strikes up at the beginning of Fellowship of the Rings. Of course, all three of the movies um, sets me up for adventure, tranquility, majesty at the beginning of that movie. But if we look at how the soundtrack evolves into Return of the King, um, you know, but also a, 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 a composer who's worked on movies like Seven, you know, Seven, a movie that is all uh, stabbing and pronounced. You know, if you think at the end of that movie, the what's in the box scene, yeah. the score is building the tension in that scene. So much so. It's brilliant. It's brilliant use of music within that. Alan Silvestri's Back to the Future theme. Oh, wicked. You know, instantly recognisable. Oh my God. Right, apologies. There's going to be lots of that in here. Oh, of course, yeah. Um Sets up adventure that the movie. He would also go on to compose the Avengers theme, which I like to point out is best played on a fucking kazoo. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know that has to be one of the most recognisable pieces of Definitely music within not. film and probably cinema. The most, probably most recent, I'd say as well. Um, Hans Zimmer, someone who's maybe a bit more chaotic, someone who um, creates orchestra music via technology using. Um, <laughs> Using computers to to make a lot of the the um, the symphonies that he creates. Hans Zimmer's problem is, I imagine now. I remember it, it was for Inception because Inception became Interstellar. It went Interception, then Interstellar. Right? Mm. Is that in his trailer for Inception he used a foghorn? And ever since then, you've got to have a foghorn in your trailer. Like a foghorn. <laughs> I mean, before that, in the nineties. I mean, he played the soundtrack to Wildebeest stampeding the gorge and given us one of the most heartbreaking moments in, in animated cinema history. And that's the, the, the death of Mufasa. God rest his soul, pour one out for Mahomie. 
but Gladiator and Dark Knight, Hans Zimmer certainly uh, is a contender for our top list. Bernard Herrmann, who's one of my personal favourites for his work on the Alfred Hitchcock movies, Psycho, is a film that is most commonly known for the scene, obviously, with Marion Crane, where she's killed in the shower, and yeah. the stabbing, literally the sca- stabbing orchestra of that moment, which Hitchcock wanted silent as well. He wanted that to be a silent death. He didn't know. Now look at what it's done to cinema and how it's kind of redefined genre, um, you know, horror. But then but, the beginning of that movie, if you yeah. listen to the music at the beginning of that whirlwind, that tells you exactly where this film is going. But I guess what you're saying, listeners, is, wow, all these old films, well, I'm going to stop you there and, and jump in, interjecting Aaron C. And he, I, I know for a fact he's probably got this coming up and I'm jumping the gun. But when we went to go see The Joker, we both left talking about the music and actually mm. won an Oscar. And I thought, because you always have the one to butcher a name, I'll butcher it this I, time. Is it? Is it? Because I've made a point to try and learn it because okay. we butchered it twice. And I haven't got it in front of me, but is it Johanna Johansson? Is Hilda Judonna? Oh, I've got my score there. I've got my composer mixed up. But but she won an Oscar. And Mm. this is when I was talking to uh, a lady at work, George at work. I said, she's done the film for Tar. She's done the music for the film Tar. And I said, she's actually a name. Hilda is a name that will get me in the cinema. Mm. If I find, well, I look at the films that she's done. So she's done Prisoners and Arrival. So she's got, when I listened to. the Joker soundtrack. I went back and listened and saw mm. what films she'd done. I was like, God, they're epics. They're, they're fucking epic films with great music. So now she's on the list now, of people that will get me into a cinema. You, and she's on there with like three other composers. That's a hard list to crack. You've just name dropped a movie there that I was going to save as... Um, oh, I apologise. No, no, it's not a problem. Which is going to save as my kind of, my ultimate piece of music in, in any film. Um, but, but it blends... It, it blends between score and soundtrack because in the movie Arrival, they use Max Richter's um, music in that, so yeah. it, which has been used in other films as well. But I, I think that is maybe my favourite ever piece of music that's ever been in a movie, which I, which I found in um, Daylight. Daylight Arrival. Arrival. So the, the music's called On the Nature of Daylight, which if you do nothing out of this episode... Listen to Listen Max to Richter's it. On the Nature of Daylight, which is in Arrival. It is the best piece of music ever recorded. And it's one of them where I, I thought it was the original score, but it actually turns out Max Richter composed it and licensed it towards the movie. But yeah, just why you name dropped Arrival, that is my favourite ever piece of film, uh, music. Danny Elfman. We did a whole piece on Danny Elfman you not too did. long back. Yeah, I was yeah. Say, you did. You were a huge fan. I mean, it's almost not, as if we're building to something. I mean, I, I would say... I would say um, you know, you can have your favourite Batman, you can have your favourite Batmobile, There's you can have one. your favourite uh, Alfred, but there is only one score for Batman, and that is the 89 uh, Batman uh, theme by Danny Elfman. Hold it, mate. Hold it in my head right now. Look at his Simpsons theme, Nightmare Before Christmas, Men in Black, Milk, Weird, odd, sweet, interesting, Danny Elfman. And then, of course, there's the Mac Daddy, the mammoth composer, whose successes and achievements are just silly. The man probably doesn't even go to the Oscars. He just has them FedEx to his house because he's got better things to do than collect every fucking award from literally every iconic film. He's the reason why a lot of people on this list got into composing music. The only fucking name in the composing world, not the only name, as we've just suggested, there are a lot, but is there anyone bigger? I mean, John Williams is the big one. And ultimately, the question is, when you do a top three, how many of them are John Williams? But... Star Wars, Jaws, Indiana Jones, E.T., Jurassic Park, Harry Potter, John Williams. It is. He's a phenom. 
He's a fucking he's the undertaker, mate, of the film composure world. He, 21 and 0, unbeaten the streak. <laughs> I think it's really cool. It's the sort of music that is always important to me and is one of the reasons why we're doing this episode. It's because when we're thinking of these iconic films, I love Indiana Jones, but when I'm thinking of Indiana Jones and I'm seeing a whip and I'm seeing a hat and I'm seeing Harrison Ford sweating up, because let's be honest, he looks hot when he's sweating up and he's ruffled up mm. and that iconic music plays. I get kicked in the childhood, babe. My childhood comes alive and it's like, don't pay your taxes, don't, uh, don't MOT the car, Sit in your pants, eat cereal, and watch fucking Raiders of the Lost Ark, mate. That's what that's the magic of film. So what I am imagining that's in your top three. You 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 know me, mate. You know Indiana Jones is in my top three. So do you want to do your top three and I'll do my top five or do we do five? Well I've, I did top to three, but then I did two other ones. Okay. I'm gonna start off with technically number five. I'll put it number five as one of my most underrated pieces of music of all time. Mm. And it comes from a film franchise, which I said at the top, which I think when you think of the music, you, you kind of belittle the franchise. And it's a composure by three different people. Uh, Nivik Ogre, Al Jurgensen, and Basil Poldot. It's the music composed to the trilogy Robocop. And I do think it's genuinely one of the most underrated scores. It's an actual fantastic score. Didn't see that coming. Didn't see it coming. And number five is... Dum 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 dum. Yeah, it's good. It's jaunty. It's also happy. But then later, when the man gets shot to death, no, no, it's, it's, it's brutal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also brutal. It's a brilliant kind of. Um, it's a brilliant kind of journey that takes us on throughout the three films. Even the third film's crap, but the music is stylized on the storyline. It tells a story within its music it composes. It's underrated here. It doesn't belong on a top three. Like I say, it was my most underrated piece of music, and that was my number five. It was a cracker. Mm. It was, of course, Robocop. Now, my number four. Oh, should I do five? Should we go oh, that way? Do five, so, taking in mind that Max Richter's On the Nature of Daylight isn't allowed in my top five, but maybe in next week's episode when we talk about soundtracks. Yes. Composers and soundtracks, <laughs> two different weeks. My number five is an example of a score which is better than the movie. <laughs> I love this. And it's a, it's a, it's a, I like the first of these. Mm. but I will say the score is fucking banging and the film's all right. Is it, is it the first John Williams arrival? No, it's, oh, it's, it's, not. it's, it's Hans Zimmer's Pirates of the Caribbean theme. Mate, my number four, Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> <laughs> not fair. They're like, well, the first one passable. But other than that, the yeah. only thing you remember, dun, 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 dun. I imagine, right, if I was ever being chased by the police, that's the music I've played. They'll mm. get me right up for it. It's brilliant. <laughs> it's fucking it's brilliant. I, I, sat, I sat there like, I remember one evening just learning how to play it on guitar. <laughs> and I thought, I'm never going to play this to anyone. <laughs> but I've enjoyed myself this yes, evening. Yes, you have. Um, yeah, I, it's a great piece of music. It's a piece of music that sets you up for that first movie. You know, that first movie, it's sunny, it's bright, it's pirates. It's, you know, it's everything that you want in a film called Pirates of the Caribbean. You it, need that soundtrack. It was nice in one and four, so it was on my list. It was originally scheduled in for one and four. I was just looking at my list. And I apologize. It's a great, I'm with you. It gets played whenever something magical, adventurous happens. Mm. It's bog standard. Like when you see Johnny Depp running like a drunk parrot, you know, if, if you were watching on mute, you'd know the music would be yeah. playing. Yeah. <laughs> so. And it's infamous. It's not like you could take that score and put it anywhere else. You know what I mean? It's, it's synonymous now with that. And, and all these top ones are. But, um, to my number four, if that's your number four, it's not. Sorry, oh. it's, it, it was on my number four, but I have a list of. I have a list. I apologize. I had a list of other ones in case we had step over. I I just realized. Well, we will because I'm saying when we get to number three, two, and one, they're going to cross. But. Um, 
Yeah, you, no, it was. Yeah, it was my number four. Yeah, sorry. So my, I had other ones in case we had like if we weren't allowed the same ones. So my number four is the first John Williams that's going to come into this list. My number four is Hedwig's theme from Harry Potter <sighs> because that that score is magical. It, is magical. it sounds magical. He's done something with instruments, you know that that is really embodied the purpose of. You know, you, you you know the Terminator score that you talked about earlier. You know, that's very synthy. You know, it's got the kind of reverby drums. You know, dun, 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 kind of you know the the tom hitting of that. <laughs> but you could take that away and put it in another sci-fi movie of that time. Yes, you could. That's actually a very good point. You could. Hedwig's theme, not Robocop. No, no. no. <laughs> Hedwig's theme in in Harry Potter. That main twinkle when it starts before it comes into the full orchestra. I am straight away in Hogwarts when I hear that film. When I hear that music, I'm there with my little Hufflepuff robe on. Yeah. No, nah, Rover Claw already there. I'm going, Harry Potter's theme, main theme, is my number four. Can I just say that this is generally the most difficult list we've ever done? But no matter what happens, there's people screaming now, going, that shouldn't be there. There's going to be ones that we haven't mentioned. I've only got top three left. And my top two are so ingrained mm. that if you don't know what they are, you don't know me. Mm. So my top two are that you might question the order. But the third one, so when I had this list, I realised afterwards that it's not true because I only had three, remember? I picked up my number five was my most underrated. And I felt like Pirates of the Caribbean, <laughs> your argument, I genuinely think is a, it should be in a better film. <laughs> so I should have said was in the wrong film franchise. So my actual top three, it's difficult as fuck. And I, I really... I'm sorry. I am really sorry that I'm going to be pulling out a John Williams Star Wars one at number three. There's so many. There is so many. And I hope you've got a different one to me. I've gone blasphemously to the prequel and gone Jewel of Fates by John Williams, which I think mm. is arguably as good as the other themes. Yeah. It's so good. And my only problem with it is it plays on a fight scene that I don't like, but it's so good. The chorus, it genuinely, if I was blind mm. <laughs> and was listening to this music play whilst I heard lightsabers beat each other, I would genuinely think I was in Nirvana, mate. mate. It is, it makes my skin, I've got fucking goosebumps right now just hearing the orchestra rise. It's fucking, it's a battle between good and evil. Put that music on when you're doing the dishes next. <laughs> fucking I epic. swear to God. You're like, fucking God! <laughs> Uh, just yeah I love it that that piece of music is so good so good and we talked about this previously about like the whole point of it being called Jewel of Fates is yes. they're fighting for Anakin's future you know and with Gwygon falling it's up to Obi-Wan yeah which isn't the path that Obi-Wan uh, that Anakin was supposed to go he's supposed to be under the shadow of Gwygon he wouldn't then have become Darth Vader so Jewel of the Fates is so fucking good it is good and it needs that kind of trust between director and composer and you need a John Williams to mm. basically go John this pretty big scene mm. <laughs> it's got so, so much stuff I also want to use it it's going to be like the new theme and Star Wars, Star Wars has got some of the best music let's be honest if we were mm. talking about soundtrack Star Wars it, let's be honest it's all the Star Wars music from the Imperial theme to the Layers New Hope they're all phenomenal songs but you're the face, mate. It, it sets up more than the films allow us to have. Tell me that story. Jewel of Fates. My number three is, we've already dropped it earlier, but I'm going to come back to it. Howard Shaw's Lord of the Rings Fellowship Music. And this is what I mean. I'm talking over your point. I don't if, want to ask Karen. If I'm 
no one just watches Fellowship. You you put it on knowing you're going to go on the journey. You're yes. going to watch at least a minimum of nine hours, but potentially up to 12 what hours if of, you're going to... What kind of... What kind of- Monster would just put the first one on and then not put the second one on. So you're going to do it and you need to settle into an adventure. Yes. As the the film sets past its beginning narrative and we go to see our our hero or we see Gandalf arriving, you know, as we see um, Frodo, the music is charming, quaint, it's fantasy, it's it it sets up adventure. It asks questions. It invites you in. It's everything that you need for a movie that is setting up a minimum of nine hours and one of cinema's greatest quests and journeys and um, development of characters. So consistent as well. It's, it's consistently good. There's no point where you're mm. watching, like you said, nearly fifteen hours of film and gone shit music. You could you could put that vain theme of that first movie over anything and and your smile. Yeah, you, you could put it over you could put it an autopsy video and you'd be like, nice pancreas. <laughs> yeah. But also it's such a great range from and all it does is, and this is something I learned from you when we were talking about when we talk about Lord of the Rings, is it changes a few notes. The melody remains the same, but it's menacing now. It's like the same music plays when they're in the Shire to when they're outside the gates of Mordor. Obviously it's tweaked a little, but it's the same melody mm. for a little bit because it's mirroring. Through music, we're telling a story. It's, this is the thing where if you don't mm. like music, you'll never get that connection, which I don't. I, I'm not a music fan. But watching it mirror on the big screen kind of like is spelling out for me. Oh, magnifique. And, it, and I love that in a movie where you have big opposites in your soundtrack. Star Wars is a great example of when you've got the Imperial March and you've got like the main theme and you've got the good guy soundtrack and the villain soundtrack. And you can even have then the good guys in the villain's lair and, you know, all hell's breaking loose and it's the end of the world. And one of them just looks to the other and says something and there's just a flute, yes. a little motif of their anthem. And you're like, oh, it's the good guy soundtrack. Look at Masters of the Universe when He-Man pulls the sword out of the great, uh, out of the stone at grade school. Yeah. The soundtrack changes to He-Man's music. And now, you know, and that pushes us on the right side of saying the villain, you know, the, the, the good guy is going to win. You know, that's how we all get behind him in that moment. So yeah, I I, uh, I love the Lord of the Rings soundtrack, and I, I particularly I love the whole thing. But I just love being in the shower at the beginning, and that's where I want to retire. I do. Oh, that's like that. that's that's why I hope heaven is. Or I'd like to run a bed and be near Hogwarts. Yeah, yeah. And after the, after the after events. the Nazi yeah. after the Nazi musicians. Yeah. <laughs> oh, mate, I'm gonna hit it again. I'm gonna go back, John Williams. And do you know what in my life, mate? When I go up for Christmas, it's not a Christmas movie. I'm putting it on because I like Harrison Ford. I am putting it on because I like the adventures. But deep down, I just want to whip a bitch to the sound of John Williams <laughs> and his Indiana Jones theme. In in it, it, there's only one foot, there's only one music better than it. I can't help it. I'm a John Williams whore. It is the best introduction to a character. It's the best, it's beautiful. And it also plays, and this is something that we don't really talk about. So, you know, in an action scene, uh, perfect, Lord of the Rings, the music matches the action. The Indiana Jones theme only plays when he's on a plane. <laughs> he's going across a map. Mm. That's the only time it really plays, or when something magnificent has happened. Or, if you're in the fourth one, unearned. Yeah. The, like, the fourth film, like, taints the glory that is John Williams' theme music, the Indiana Jones theme. You're humming it right now. We, we're all humming it. You're listening to this and you're thinking, of course it's Indiana Jones. But now you're thinking, what the hell is number one? I've got three things that I think is your number one. It's either 89 Batman. It's either 
the Superman theme, the original Superman theme, or it's Star Trek. You might be surprised. It is none of them. Something did just come to the back of my mind. Could be Jaws because the effect it had on everyone going in water. So Jaws was originally on the list because Jaws. The two film, notes. The, the two film, notes. The film didn't terrify people from getting in the water. The fucking music <laughs> yeah, did. Dude. Like, like people, people, people would be in the water. They sort of go, "Dun," and you're like, "It's a good point." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like my feet. Um, I'm, I'm off. Hold on. So yeah, so if it's not any of them, I did have one in my head. I thought, "Oh no, that's so James." The Rocky theme. When life's got you it. down, mate. When life's got you down, it's not. Life's not about how hard you can hit. It's Rocky. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. And it's revered as much as the character. Bill Conti created a theme music that inspired everyone. It's my alarm music, mate, because when I wake up, I want to feel... I want want it, mate. I want the day. I want to take it. I want to beat piss out. I want to throw it over my shoulder and run like a fireman saving the day. I hate snooze, but... Mate, mate, there is nothing, nothing in this world that can't be achieved by the Rocky theme and Bill Conti having an orchestra in your ear, building, building, building. It's the only music I know that builds to a crescendo that cannot be heard, mate, because the final note is above human comprehension because it's Rocky, mate. The cat's everywhere. Fucking fizzed off. It's the Rocky theme, mate. It isn't about... It doesn't hit you in your ears, mate. It tickles your soul. It makes you believe in yourself it makes you believe in everything Bill Conti number one Rocky theme tune the orchestra version none of this horseshit remix bollocks even mm. mate he's such a character even has a cameo in Apollo 2 yeah. doesn't play for the entire film then right at the final fi- final bell that's when it plays because you've earned it you've sat through this film fucking Rocky so for those that can get it it was Indiana Jones number two <laughs> and uh, the Rocky theme number one to mine going uh in descending order was Pirates of the Caribbean, Hedwig's theme from Harry Potter, uh, Howard Shaw's Lord of the Rings. From number two for me is Raiders, the Raiders March from yeah, Indiana Jones. Pretty good, yeah. And number one for me is the Star Wars main theme, John Williams' Star Wars main theme. Is, it, and I picked one Star Wars, yeah. one. but and there's people out there screaming because I like to point out. Sorry, you finish and then I'll go. No, I, was, I think a new Star Wars: a New Hope is a great example, as, as I've already said, so I won't repeat it all. Of scores that give character definition. You've talked about Leia's got themes. You talk about, um, you know, the, obviously the main theme, the Imperial Death March and the, and the Stormtroopers got themes. But there's just something about, and I've seen it, I've witnessed it now at least six times in cinema um, from original films that I've seen, but now the TV shows as well. There's something about when that orchestra lights up and you see Star Wars on screen, mm. even the worst of the, them movies. It still gets you. I'm that, there. That break of music. I, and it would, ne- I think, I, I I don't think anything will ever take that away from me. To as long as I'm on this planet, that theme will get me going. It, 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 even the films that don't land, I still love Star Wars. And 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 that's that's up there. That's I I picked all the fates, knowing that at some point the Star Wars main theme was going to be on there. Just then when it starts, it's it's as iconic as the the words flying in space. Mm. It is a transcendent moment where you don't exist as a person, you exist to watch this film. Like, there could be a war going on outside, but you're so captivated that you're in the moment. That's the power of music. Um, the ones that I couldn't make, because I only did the top three, the other two were kind of throwaways. Um, the Star Trek motion, the Star Trek theme was mm. perfected in a TV series, though, with a theremin. <laughs> That's epic. We talk about these theme musics. None of these were made with a theremin. Doctor Who's was. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Jurassic Park. Yeah. Iconic. But the one that was really hard to leave out was in the 80s. We believe the man could fly. 
And mm. the, the the Superman music is iconic. It's more iconic. So the Superman, whoever plays Superman will always change. His costume will change. The stories he tells will change. The fucking music will always be John Williams' uh, Superman theme. It yeah. will never change. It will always be that. And that's unfortunate. When you make something so good, don't fucking matter. In a hundred years, if they remake Indiana Jones, they'll have the same theme music. Mm. And, and, and that's just a matter of fact. I... Uh... It's interesting that because I think the '89 Batman was my, was the hardest one not to put on this list mm. because rewatching it's the definitive Batman movie. Yeah, as well. listening to seeing the Flash this week, the trailer for the Flash movie, you get the motifs of the Danny Elfman score in there. See the car as well. You see the car. You see obviously Michael Keaton. Probably, fuck him. Probably, probably a bit too much, <laughs> but um, you'll see Ben Affleck as well, which is yeah. you know can't win them all. <laughs> but um, this got a, the, I, I know they haven't got him, but the, part of me does think they need Christian Bale in there because two Batman's all right, but the, you kind of need a third, don't you? And, and George Clooney's come out and said he's not in it. Uh, so he, he, And he's the only one that could bring gravitas to the role of the most successful it. Batman. Or an apology. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, 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 that was the hardest one for me to, to leave off. But yeah, I love scores. I love music. I've, a lot of the vinyl that I collect are film scores. And a lot of the time when I'm, just out and about or doing housework, I put scores. I, I just love, I love the build. I love the suspense. I love the the motifs that come out through these pieces of music. But doing a top five is hard. I, Too hard. But- it's weird because all those Star Wars is definitively my favourite because what it represents and what it embodies in the years of love and worship for it. That Harry Potter theme and the Lord of the Rings theme, very similar to me, just... The first few notes twinkling. I'm like, are we doing this? Yeah. Are we fucking doing it? We do it. We, all right, let's go. Let's go to Hogwarts. Let's, let's do go. it, mate. Fucking bring it, Voldemort. No nose. What? Plonk. Who shall not be known? Fucking. Who? I'm amazed that we didn't drop that in the in the mummy episode last week when we did the mummy. What? Is that she says? Uh, she says. She says. Uh, Imhotep. And then someone goes, "He who shouldn't be named." I'm like, it's not fucking Voldemort, is it? <laughs> <gasps> Neither of them had noses, though. Oh my god! I was literally going to say, "Fight the ages!" In my tent versus Voldemort, obviously. <laughs> fucking the other one gets beaten by by fucking CGI, The Rock, yeah. and and Ghost. <laughs> so here, there, there are film schools. Let us know. Um, let us know via Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, wherever you live. Uh, that their technology media. that you use. Yeah, let us know what your favourite scores are and your favourite compositions. Next week, we, uh, we've we still got a bit to go, but just while we're on it, next week we'll be doing soundtracks. So um, more jukebox mixtapes. So we're looking at your Tarantinos, we're looking at your Edgar Wrights, so we're looking at the movies that take famous songs and put them into scenes, you know, like... Stuck in the middle of you. Nothing, say, nothing, nothing says cut a man's ear off like that. Was that the song? Unless you don't like that song. <laughs> Please cut my ears off. Do you like the Louise Redknapp version? No. Oh. No one likes it. That's why Redknapp divorced. <laughs> but the, um, yeah, so next week we'll be looking at the best placed music in films. Um, and the best uh, mixtape soundtrack. So we'll do so that next week. the Bells, right? From uh, The Exorcist, right? <laughs> there you go. That's all I needed, yep. That'll be next week. So uh, finishing off then, uh, I've got two more to go. Go. Happy me. Valley. Oh my God, James. Why you t- It's been out since 2014. Why haven't you told me about it? Because I never... So I live in Yorkshire now. And when the third series came, I was living in Sheffield and it was fucking everywhere. Like literally couldn't... You can't move for a poster of Happy Valley. Didn't even know it existed. People weren't talking about it until they, they decided to bring it back. And it's that rare occasion where they've... 
between the second and the third series, they left a number of years so the actor playing the child could grow up. Mm. It's the same actor throughout. And I just think it's marinated. It's a slow cooker, mate. Do you know what happened between the years two and three? Uh, the series two and three. We all went mental for it, mate. We 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 could smell it. We could. You come home, the slow cooker on. You can smell it. And you, we were ravid. We wanted it, and we got it. Well, and I know you haven't finished it, but I'm just going to tell you, not let down. I'm two episodes from the end, and and similar to my experience of Game of Thrones and Line of Duty. Always oh, waited <laughs> until they would all come out, and then I come in at the. Oh, it's been a long time coming, <laughs> and I've only watched it a week. Um, but. I will say that Sarah Lancaster's uh, performance in the main role as Catherine Kaywood is just some of the best writing and creating. And for a character that feels so fleshed out and real with motives and, do you know what I mean? It's a really well-written character that she embodies. She is, she's so relatable in a situation that we would never be in. Yeah. But because <laughs> so, like, even even things like Line of Duty that I love, I'm very much aware that these people do not exist. Yes, exactly. Whereas I can see Catherine K. Wood being that place woman in a small town outside of Halifax, you know, who's like, stop being silly, get down from there, you break your ankle. <laughs> come on, come back to the station, we'll have a brew and we'll talk about it. You know what I mean? It's You're like that. my people, man. <laughs> but I, lo- I love it. I, f- I think it's very well cast with James Norton in the lead as, as Tommy Lee Royce. Is- I'd like to point out, he is he is a, such a great villain. He's up there with Trevor. I will point I'm him up as I'm just gonna Trevor say, level he's, villain. He's dangerous territory of he needs to be in a romantic comedy very quick. Otherwise, he's um, going Trevor way. Or, or he's going to yeah, be typecast forever as a, as a naughty man. Um but yeah, I, I I I think he's got big things coming for him um, very very shortly. But yeah, I, I thought the the first two seasons that I've seen in completion are really really good, really really good. Um, just wish I'd seen it sooner. And yeah. actually, you know, real testament to it is that um, Emily's uh, loving it. <gasps> she didn't fall asleep. Not falling asleep, so it must be good. Bullshit. Um, even told me off for recording tonight because she was like, "I thought we were going to finish it." Well. She's got a good point. <laughs> She's valid. Um, it doesn't let you down, mate. It's, I, I would still maintain that the last episode is one of its strongest as well. And what's really good is there's no weak points. And we don't Americanise it. They're like six or eight. I think they're all six. Six episodes, Six yeah. episodes. It's all perfect. You can tell a story. You don't need 24. You don't need 24 plus hours to tell a decent storyline. That's what I love about this country. We don't overblow our things. You'll say, oh, they've got soaps that run and stuff like that. But but when it comes to our broad church, only six episodes. Mm. Doctor Who is only like 12 episodes. You know, it, it, we always keep it tight. We're, we're very good. We know what we like and we want it. So the radio was disgusting. It's like, oh, why don't they bring it back? It's only, it's, 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 the, it's the most popular it's ever been. Do a four series. That would ruin it. No, you need to perfect it. Keep it three. This brings me on to a good point. They're bringing um, 40 Towers back. Won't yeah. work. Won't yeah. work. It's his daughter, isn't it? Yeah, and, and he'll play a part in it. But, but it won't work, one, because it's a different world now. And two, we need to stop doing this, bringing back things that naturally ended and were fine. Excuse me. I, um, I've i seen a movie that was so odd and bizarre and I've made no notes for, so I'm very much aware that I'm going to confuse the hell out of you. No good. Bearing in mind the last few weeks you've told me about men. Very up, very up there with men. Have you seen that yet? It's fucking odd. Do you know why I'm not going to go see it? Because you explained it to me. So why would I ever want to watch Rory Kinnear do that? Crimes of the Future, a film so bizarre, I woke up the next day with a hangover thinking, I fucking dreamt that because it's so odd. Um, Sars Vegan Mortensen in it. It's got Leah Sudon. I think that's how you pronounce the name um, in it as well. It's got uh, Kristen Stewart in it as well. 
it's a movie directed by David Cronenberg, so it's that body horror kind of stuff that he, he's known for. Yep. Um, so it's an 18, and it's set in the future, dystopian future, the collapse of humanity. Good old collapse. Yeah. We, we never succeed, do we? <laughs> we no. We pulls it up. <laughs> it, you know, it, it, people are, it's not, it doesn't look war-torn or anything. There's futuristic technology to a degree. Um, people aren't fighting, but it's very dystopian. And humans have evolved to not have feelings, not feel pain, not to die of the certain diseases that we do die of. Um, and the, this is where it gets, so that, that's fine. This is where it starts getting odd. <laughs> this is it. Vigo Mortessen can grow organs. You've lost me already. He can grow <laughs> organs in his body. Well, at will. Yeah, no, just they just start growing. Oh, so he's like, oh, I've got a third lung. Yeah, pretty right, much. Okay. Pretty much. Um, he ha- He's a artist, an exhibition artist. So basically him and Leah Sudo's character, who's Caprice. So this is Soul and Caprice. They um, do like underground art shows where she autopsies him live to remove said organ. Right, and then they but, grow back and he doesn't die. Yeah, <clears throat> but she also beforehand tattoos the organs so that the new government or the new authority in this futuristic world can make sure that they're not being harvested or given to other people, or at least if they are, they can keep track of them because they want to make sure that humans don't evolve to being able to produce these organs or, or new things that would push the species way past it's supposed to be in mankind and humanity. And on the same about? time, there's these other guys that have learned how to develop a digestive system to handle plastic. So they are eating these like plastic purple bars and that's how you can tell if they've got it. And so they have developed certain characteristics within their organs to be able to, you know, digest synthetic materials. And that's seen as a crime against humanity. And it all evolves around a boy that's died who may or may not have the natural capabilities to digest plastic and all the way through it, you've got tattooing of organs and live autopsies and there's a dance halfway through the movie that takes about 10 minutes <laughs> Sorry, and it's a man covered in ears. And it's just, of it is. it's just weird, weird film that I was like, I'm, I'm really, 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 really lost. And it, and it, yeah, it's one of those films that ends on a question kind of thing. It's like, oh, is it, did that happen or did it? And I, fuck, I was long gone by that point. <laughs> but the only reason I bring it up is not because I find it remotely interesting or exciting. Oh, God, no. But it's definitely the weirdest movie that I've seen since Men, which I watched three weeks ago. <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> I don't know how I find these films. Um, I think they find you. I think your problem is you've got that in your algorithm now. You watch Men. So now the system thinks it's a challenge. So we're like, right, mm. so he's come back for more. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Um, but I don't know I don't know where to start with this film getting greenlit. We talked about the, the trials. Well, obviously, and, obviously someone went there and went, do you know what? Let's make this film. Well, like, <laughs> we talked about the, 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 the trials of trying to get like the mummy relaunched, you know, and stuff like that in the 90s and, and, the, and the hoops that studios have to jump through and get certain people attached to it. And then you see a film like this with Viggo Mortensen in it you know, where he he's very much frail in it because he feels pain. So he's one of the people that still does feel pain. Um, and he's growing these organs inside him that are being tattooed and then extracted in front of crowds underground like it's art. You know, it's very like... I still don't know really what it is for him. Is he getting paid? No, he's an artist. That's what... But, but no, because then at the end, spoiler, turns out he might be an undercover agent. Which I like, obviously. Yeah, which is a side storyline that I definitely wasn't bothered about. 
and then all the way through, you got Kristen Stewart twitching all the way through the film, like like she's I don't know upset about the man who's just done the ear dance, <laughs> and then. Um, it's just hard. I was just watching What's this like, film. Where is it? Where is it's, it? It's on Sky Cinema. It's called Crimes of Future. Surprisingly, it didn't have a big release. <laughs> oh, this is a shame because fucking audiences are crying out for ear bands. <laughs> I, I watched it with the Cronenberg attachment because I thought, you know what? Oh, not up. I'm not a massive Cronenberg fan, and I know he does in a lot of circles. I did this to enlighten myself into some more of his work. Yeah, um, you know, because well, because I know him from The Fly, and he was the Doctor in Jason X. So <laughs> I wanted to broaden my. And someone's screaming right now, going, "How dare you?" He's like one of the best oh. cinema filmmaker directors, actors of all time. But fucking hell. this is a weird, weird film, and I'm not doing it justice. I know that. I know that. But I was uh, ten minutes into this film, I'm like, "Why are these dudes eating these like purple bars?" And then this other guy picked it up and edit, and he died. And I'm like, I don't get it. Like why and it turns out it's plastic. It's pure plastic that they're eating, but they've learned how to evolve to be able to do it, which Everyone is supposed to be a sign to say, look, it's the thing that killed the human race is the production of plastic and how it polluted oceans and destroyed things. And look at the evolution that humans are now been able to digest. It is some kind of like full circle. Yeah. But there's these authorities that don't want humans to evolve into what they believe is like not our path. And then somewhere in between, you've got these other individuals that can grow organs like Vigo Mortensen. Fucking odd movie. Odd film. I've no idea. Is, is, remember when you told me about men, I didn't know how to respond. Mm. I was just like, I don't know. The only thing I can do to respond to that is to just ignore you <laughs> and talk about Disenchanted. I tell you what, if anyone's seen <laughs> it, and I say this every week, right into us, Dobbs and I, if you've seen Crimes of the Future, let me know I'm not alone. <laughs> that you didn't see Someone has seen this film. <laughs> Um, Amy Adams we love Amy Adams on this show it's been a while since we've seen her I fell in love with her many years ago when she played uh, Giselle mm. and uh, I think you did as well I know that you watched it a few years later but you got to admit there was a certain amount of charm about a princess who leaves the fairy tale world comes to New York and basically is shit on by the human race there's whimsy to that film there James. is whimsy bringing back a lot of the original cast um, Patrick Dempsey as mm. modern day New York dashing man James Marsden. How did he get that role? <laughs> James Marsden as the um, actual animated Prince, <laughs> Prince Charming. And then Indra Mazel, Idina Mazel, who's basically everywhere after Frozen. So uh, adding Maya Rudolph. I don't know what you think about Maya Rudolph. I Very think, funny. I think Maya Rudolph may be up there with Amy Fowler as the, the funniest. Mm. I think they're hilarious. Usually when they get together, they have a lot of fun. Well, life has turned a bit shit for Giselle. She's not getting on. She's lost the magical whimsy living in the city, so she decides to move with her family to Monroeville. However, now the daughter is a lot older. So in the first one, she played by four-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old, teenager now, mate, wearing grungy clothes. Mm. Giselle wants to like try and make life better for her. So she... Uh, up sticks. Up sticks, up sticks. They go to Monroeville. It's a picturesque place. They live in a shithole. It's all gone wrong. The mm. electrics in a new house are bollocks. Everything's not as great as you would have thought. And um, Morgan is not having the best of times. Like, Giselle shows up, she's trying to make her popular by making cakes, but she's showing her up, mate. She, she doesn't want to be this person. Enter her fairy godparents, Prince Charming or Prince Edward and Nancy. Two things. Nancy is the obviously the character that was in love with Patrick Dempsey in the first one, who then left with Prince Edward to the animated world. I'm going to tell you now. Who is she to lecture fucking Morgan and Oz 
bear in mind, she's a fucking muggle who's living in this magical world. She comes back and basically uh, they come into the real world and go, oh, here's, here's a wishing wand. Oh. Only a true daughter of Andalasia can use this. Oh. This upsets more. Oh, sorry, Giselle's, I apologise. Uh, Giselle's had a child of her own. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah. I do apologise. Because what happens now is Morgan's a bit jealous. She hears that only a true Andalusian daughter can do it. This wand is a gift for the new baby. Gonna be honest right now, first act of this film, jelly, mate. Very good. We've not had jelly for a while. We've not had jelly. You said you said that we needed to talk about films in a different different order. Mm. No, sorry, cream. Sorry. The first act is the cream. It's why it's perfect. It's good. We just enough story building that we start getting into it. And the story's different. I thought Disenchanted would go down the road that she has to pay her taxes. The world is shit. Yeah. No, but it's gone to she's trying to keep the magic in the world. She can still talk to rats. She's just out in the in the suburbs now. Maya Rudolph plays like the suburb queen bee. She organizes the steak bakes, mate. She oh. she's all about that. Her son's the most popular one. She's the queen, if you will. Maybe uh, Giselle, trying to make life perfect, accidentally has the wishing wand and makes a wish that life would be a bit more magical and fairy tale. Hence transformation. But here's something. Morgan and Giselle's relationship has changed. And Morgan might call Giselle her stepmother. <gasps> what happens in fairy tales is the stepmother is evil. I'm going to tell you now. Second act. Amy Adams is evil. I'm, I'm unhinged right now. However, the second act, a bit cloggy, not as smooth as the cream. Custard, mate. A thick custard. We're getting trifle territory here, James. We are getting trifle territory because the third act is bollocks. <laughs> it's, it's a trifle, In mate. a Disney film, the third act is bollocks. <laughs> it's, it's a trifle. What, is, what sets up as a really good storyline, which I wasn't expecting, by the end of it, is, is overpowdered with songs. So I remember there being like three songs in the first one. Every time someone sneezes, someone has a song. It's ridiculous. Too many songs in this Disney film that I'm that I chose to watch. <laughs> it, there's too much, mate. It was a definite trifle. It starts off brilliant. The first day's fantastic. The second chair, I like it, but it's almost as if instead of fruit at the bottom, they'd shit. Oh, that's not a good trifle. That's <laughs> not a good trifle. Good cream, all right custard, puerile shit. Oh dear. Was a fun film though. And out of the three films I watched this week, if I had a choice, it would definitely be Amy Adams singing a duet song about how evil she is against Maya Rudolph. Hell yes. I I don't know if I can see Amy Adams as a villain, James. She does a good job. Don't get me wrong, it's contrived. And there's also this idea as well that I really like the first Enchanted because it took a risk. It basically said, hey, Disney, we're going to take the piss out of our own Disney world. I like in this one that the trope is that the stepmother must be evil because mm. she's wished for a fairy tale like existence she now has cast herself as the villain the lesson at the end mate <sighs> i turned to esther and said two things would happen about 20 minutes into this film and they both came so it's not winning prizes for original ideas however i did like it it was fun it was okay it doesn't have this reliance on this character that you've not met since the first act who I spoke with three lines saves the day. And you're like, oh yeah, because I forgot he existed. <laughs> it was okay. I enjoyed it. Watch it with the kids. Got to really be a fan of the first one though. And as a mega fan, I obviously watched the shit out of this film. That, I mean, that's it. Because you went in with so high expectations. Yeah, being, they could being... only go down. But my Rudolph, I love her. She's great mm. in this. And mm. that song that they kind of duet about who's badder is actually quite good. I did enjoy the rest of the songs. Nah, not for me. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> there you go. Well, that's. I mean, we've had every. That's the beauty of the show, isn't it? We've had the, the highs, the lows, the midgrounds. The Ant Man, the Disenchanted. Yeah. The fucking whatever the hell. The crimes of future. But we had Bullet which, Train. Which was your fever dream? <laughs> we had Bullet Train and we talked about composers. I mean, in an hour and 11 minutes, we've done the asses with that one. As we've said, next week, we are going to do a soundtrack. So we're going to look at the best mixtape and jukebox films, uh, everything from the 80s, I imagine, up till, uh, up till now. But, um, and then uh, who knows if you've got an idea for an episode like we had last week, if you want to write in and recommend something like we had with uh, The Mummy, do let us know and uh, we can check that out. But that is our show for this week. If I don't see you later, good afternoon, good evening, good night. Goodbye.